0: Uh, I don't know about uh, you, but I have this terrible habit of always losing my keys. I did it this morning. They seem to just disappear in the house and I can never uh, find them. And uh, I'm always thankful that I, um, all my jobs are close to home within walking distance because if forever I can't find my keys, then I could probably just walk to everything. But the sad thing is I, I lose them almost on a daily basis and I get in this crazy panic because I always seem to be lost and, or running late and can't find them as I'm going through the house and I get so flustered that I'm of no good use whatsoever. And then my wonderful and lovely wife often steps in and calmly finds my keys for me. Now the other day she said, I read an interesting, she, she came to me and she said, I, I read a really interesting article on the internet the other day. I read that you can actually buy a GPS chip that you can now attach to your keys so that if you ever lose your keys, you can just look on your phone on the GPS and find your keys. Well, here's the problem with that. I'm always losing my phone at the same time. I remember when she told me this story, uh, I I, uh, I said, I remember thinking to myself, don't you like helping me find my keys every day? I mean, isn't that something you enjoy to do? It made me think about this quote, this quote that we've all heard before. Behind every successful man is what? There is a strong, wise, and hardworking woman. Now, I'm not sure it kind of works in the opposite direction, but I've certainly found that. Uh, to be true in my life. And that quote came to mind several times as uh, I reflected on our passage this morning, because our passage this morning is really a story about women coming to the rescue. Uh, I'm going to read from uh, Judges chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 24. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abanam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, and with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand." Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you were going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Canaanite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Heroshef Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his armies before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan this is god 's word let 's pray together, Father, thank you uh, for these stories lord it's it 's uh, hard for us to even imagine uh, the circumstances behind these stories. Father, uh, but we know that because they are a part of your holy word, because they are a part of your scripture, that they are profitable and beneficial for us to to not only understand you but also to grow in our relationship with you so Father, we pray. That as we meditate on this kind of ancient, wacky story, Lord, that you would help us to even see what it tells us about you and what it tells us about what life looks like in a relationship with you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been with us uh, the past couple weeks, you know that uh, during the Lenten season, we've chosen to focus on this kind of rather obscure book in the Old Testament uh, called the Book of Judges. Uh, Many people look at this book and say it's a very dark book. You can tell that in our story and uh, that it contains a very dark chapter in the nation of Israel, God's people. If you read the Old Testament at all, you'll know that the Old Testament is really kind of one big story about God's unique relationship with the nation of Israel. It wasn't an exclusive relationship. But it was a very unique and special relationship that he had with these people. He said he would be their God, they would be his people. But it's also interesting for us because in some ways the Old Testament is very instructive for us on what life looks like for us when it is lived in a relationship with God. And if you've been with us, you'll know that the key to understanding this book is four S's, right? It starts with a sin or or God's people walking away from God. That sin leads to servitude. It leads to uh, another country coming in and oppressing God's people. Then it leads to supplication or God's people coming to the end of themselves, feeling miserable and crying out to God for help. And then comes salvation, often in the form of an unlikely rescuer. It's a pattern, it's a cycle, it's a bad habit in the people of Israel that keeps repeating over and over and over itself. And over the years, as I've looked at the book of Judges, I've seen my own life in the book of Judges. I've seen patterns and cycles or habits that I get stuck in as well. So it becomes this incredibly profitable profitable book for helping us understand what a life looks like in relationship with God. The tendency for all of us whenever we approach scripture is to think about what its implications are for our, for our personal lives, to look at a passage and say, and say, what does this passage mean to me? Or how does it change the way I live my life? What does it mean for me on Monday morning? And that is important. We ought to ask those questions of the scriptures, but I think the scripture writers have almost a different aim. Because I think they always want to shift our focus. They always want to take our gaze off of us exclusively and instead put our gaze on God himself, his character, and his beauty. And this morning as we look at this passage, I think we see see three really profound things about what this says about God himself and about God's character. The first thing I think this passage tells us is it reminds us that God is incredibly faithful to his people. God is faithful to his people. Just think about the verses right as this passage starts out. It starts out in verse 1. And the people of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. If you fast forward just a few verses, you get to verse 4, where it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at this time. Of course, as we mentioned before, the passage opens just like so many do in the book of Judges, where the people uh, commit sin, they they walk in their evil ways, and God sends someone or something to wake them up, and in this case they were sold into servitude to Jabin, the king of Canaan, who was an incredibly wicked king. And as the book repeats this, you continue to be reminded of something that I think is very important, and that is the book continues to remind us that there are consequences for our sin, If you are in a relationship with God, then you know that you have been forgiven from the cosmic cost of your sin. Your debt has been paid. You have been made clean before God. You stand in the goodness and righteousness of Christ. But that doesn't mean that we stop sinning. Doesn't mean that at all. Once we enter into a relationship with God, we are positionally forgiven, but often our old person, our old habits continue and we continue in sin. And sometimes those sins bear very real consequences in our lives. Imagine for a moment that that uh, I harmed my wife or a family member in some way. Maybe it was a it was a harsh tone or uh, a harsh word that I had said to them. And imagine that my wife my wife came and confronted me about it and said, "You know, you really hurt me by by what you said." And I would look back to her and I said, "Yes, that might be true, but God has forgiven me for it, so all is said and done. Let's just move on, right?" That probably wouldn't work, would it? Would it? It would be true in a very spiritual sense, but I still need to live with the relational consequences of my sin because sin always brings consequences. If it didn't, then we would never really grow in our relationship with God. Of course, there are times that sometimes in God's perfection, he removes or mitigates the the consequences of our sin through his love. But there also are times in his perfection where the loving thing means that we actually have to live with the consequences of our sin. But there's a great danger or a great misconception whenever we think about this. And the misconception is to feel as if God leaves us alone to deal with our consequences. That God walks away or he gives up on us for a season because we've become too messy or our sin or our, or our, or our, or our, our messiness has become too much for him. But in our story, God's people had sinned and God had given them over to the consequences of their sin. They'd been sold to this wicked king who conquered them with this incredibly superior military force. We know from history that, that he was a horribly wicked king who would rape and pillage uh, God's people, and he did this for a 20-year period. And God's people were left for 20 years to deal with the consequences of their sin. But it doesn't mean, even though it was a long time, it doesn't mean that God had given up on them. Because our passage tells us that during that period, Deborah was a judge and a prophetess. Now that might seem insignificant, but it holds great meaning because Deborah as a prophetess was considered to be a mouthpiece or a spokesperson of God. So in the people's mind, whenever they thought about Deborah, they thought about God himself. She was a visible, tangible representative of God who was with them, of God who is in their midst even during this dark chapter of their story. We are often mistaken to think that God is only present in our rescue, but the reality is he's present even in the consequences part of our sin too. He's not just present in the victory, but he's also present in the captivity. You see, when we're really dealing with uh, the consequences of our sin and our missteps, we can mistakenly feel that God is absent till we atone for or we make up for our sin. But what our passage reminds us is that God is faithfully present at all times. He is in covenant with you. He has committed himself to you. He promises to never leave you nor to forsake you. He is in the dark times as well as in the good times. He is faithful to you. No matter how much you may screw up, it is never enough for him to leave. His steadfast love and his presence is never ceasing. He is with you and he will be with you To the end, he is faithful. The second thing I think we see in our passage is not only that God is faithful, but we also see that God is sovereign over all things. We didn't have time to read it, but there's this really interesting uh, chapter that comes right after Judges chapter 4. And uh, Judges chapter 5 is actually a song or a war song or, or a kind of ode to war uh, that's considered to be one of the oldest passages in, in all of the scriptures. And in this passage, it's written by Deborah and Barak. And in it, it sings about God's great power to defeat this enemy. Listen to verse four of chapter five. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Eden, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. You see what the whole passage is, is it's Deborah and Barak singing about the mightiness and the sovereign power of God himself. When you think about the story, Israel was outmatched in every way when it came to this battle. The story tells us that, that Sisera had 900 chariots, and we, we kind of don't understand all of what that means, but what it's trying to tell us is Sisera had an incredibly powerful force. Poor Israel was just kind of trying to make its own. It had just formed a loose tribal confederacy and it had no such weaponry of any kind. Because of that, they were totally outmatched and they were completely helpless. It would be like bringing blow darts to a machine gun fight. That's what this was like. They were so outmatched. And yet, in spite of all their helplessness, God routs completely routes Sisera's army. And what we learn from the song in chapter five is that Deborah, Barak, and God's people all had a keen awareness that in this whole process, God was sovereign and that he was in control of all things. They recognized that it was God that had raised Jabin up in order to enslave God's people and that it was God who was responsible for bringing down this king. And all that happened in between from start and finish was all a part of God's sovereign plan. Friends, when you think about this, it is so incredibly comforting to know that God is sovereign. I don't know how many of you have been paying attention to the, the political season. It's been hard not to this year, right? It's been a crazy political season. But what's true of every political season is everyone has their favorite candidate, the one they're going to vote for, the one they're crossing their fingers and hoping gets elected. And then they have the enemy. They have the other candidate that they think would make a terrible president. And if this candidate becomes president, if he or she becomes president, it will be an absolute disaster for our country and the world will explode. We all think in these terms. But we have to remember, especially in an election season, that ultimately God is the one who is in control. Daniel chapter two, it says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. But friends, what is true politically, what is true globally is also true personally for our lives as well. Everything that comes to you, everything that comes to you each day comes from the very hand of God. You go nowhere by accident. Every interruption that you would term an interruption comes from God's divine plan. It comes from his hand. Nothing happens to you outside of his control because he is sovereign over all things. So we see that God is faithful. We see that God is sovereign. Finally, we see from our passage that God often chooses the weak things of this world to confound the strong. I'm sure most of you have, uh, have seen this poster, uh, but it's called, the, it's called the We Can Do It poster. And the, the We Can Do It poster was, I think it was made in 1943, and it was uh, put out by uh, Westinghouse. And the picture or the poster feech- features uh, Rosie the Riveter you 've seen this before it 's a, it's a woman who's got her, her arm sleeve rolled up, she 's flexing her muscles, and she 's got a kind of a bandana around her head and and this poster, like many others, was uh, used during World War II to promote women working in warehouses to build uh, the war goods while their husbands were off uh, fighting in World War II. And, and the tagline that's at the bottom of the poster says this. It says, move over, boys. Sometimes it takes a woman to do a man's job. Now, in our passage, Barak is the military leader who God commands to go into battle against Sisera, And this must have, for him, seemed to be an impossible task. Now, history has really painted him as somewhat of a coward, because Deborah comes to him, says, you need to go out into battle. And he says, I'm not so sure about this, Deborah. I I want you to come with me. Can you please come with me while we go into the battle against this wicked king? So he very well may have been afraid to go into battle. So he asked Deborah to do it for him. It could have been the fact that because Deborah was so representative of the presence of God that he just needed to feel like God was with him when he went into battle. But either way, what we discover is that the glory for this victory will go to a woman. Often we think throughout the whole story that the glory is going to go to Deborah, but in the end it goes to another woman, a woman who is a foreigner. The victory goes to Jael. We read in the story that Jael lures this wicked military king into her tent. She lulls him to sleep, and then she graphically drives a tent peg into the temple of his head and killing him. Now, there's great irony in this passage that we, don't, that we miss because we kind of can't read the whole thing. But in chapter 5, you begin to get a sense of the wickedness of this military leader. In chapter 5, it talks about just how wicked he was, and it makes careful mention to let us know that he was particularly known for pillaging and kidnapping women for his own pleasure. He was known to, to kidnap women, to, to take him for his own possession, and to do whatever he willed with them, to, to rape them, to do all sorts of crime against them. But in the end, the great irony is that he is ultimately killed by a woman. Well, What does this kind of tell us about God? What does this kind of gruesome story tell us about God? Well, what it tells us is, is that God often uses weak things or the the things that are considered to be weak in our world to confound the strong. You see, in the ancient world, women were considered the weaker vessel. They were second-class citizens. They were considered to be inferior to men. And for a man to die at the hands of a woman would be an absolute utter disgrace to his honor. And yet, in this story, the unlikely heroines were two women. Women considered to be second class, women considered to be inferior. Yet you hear both of these women say, move over boys, sometimes it takes a woman to do a man's job. Of course, the ultimate picture of this idea of the weak confounding the strong comes in the Easter story itself. Because in the Easter story, we see the greatest victory is accomplished in the greatest moment of weakness. We see that the slavery of sin is broken and the victory is accomplished in Christ's greatest moment of weakness. Because Christ, in his weakness, confounded and gained victory over sin and death. It is the ultimate picture of the weak confounding the strong. So the scripture writers lift our gaze to God. They show us that God is faithful. They show us that he is sovereign. They show us that he uses the weak to confound the strong. But I think before we, before we wrap up, I think I need to say a word about the incredible violence that you read about in the book of Judges. And it is a very kind of violent book. If you were with us last week, you saw a king get stabbed in the stomach and his bowels spilled out all over the place. And then uh, 10,000 men were killed by Israel. This week we see a, a military leader being killed by a tent peg driven through his head. And we see another major bloody battle in the book of Judges. And many people, when they first read this book or they read the Old Testament, are, are really surprised at just how bloody and violent the Bible is. And and quite honestly, many are actually offended because it feels like it goes against all sorts of their own modern sensibilities. What's ironic about that is historians have looked at the past 100 years of our human history and deemed it to be, the most violent and bloody hundred years in all of human history, with two world, world wars, with the Holocaust, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. So it's it's very ironic that we would feel this way. But either way, the Bible, and particularly Old Testament, is a violent book. I don't know exactly why God designed it to be so violent or told these stories this way, or I don't know if I could give you answers that might satisfy your negative reaction to it, but what I do know is that the Bible's climax comes in one ultimate act of violence. Because just as Cicera was killed by a tent peg to the head, Jesus Christ's arms and legs were stretched out and were nailed to a cross. Just as Eglon was stabbed in the stomach, Jesus Christ was pierced in his side by a spear. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. He was crucified, which historians have said is one of the most painful ways to die ever thought of in human history. And what the cross tells us is that God himself was nailed to that cross that God himself was the victim of violence. But it also tells us why. It tells us that he did it willingly so that you and I could be in relationship with him. He did it so that you and I could be rescued from our servitude to sin. He did it so that the greatest consequences of our sin could be ultimately paid for He did it ultimately because he loved you and I. Let's pray.